Hey everybody, welcome to the Agiostos. My name is Bill Dykstra. Today is March the 8th, 9th, I forget which, but it's also Palamas Sunday. So happy Palamas Sunday to you. Actually, should I be giving this podcast like a cheery introduction during Lent? Like, is that fitting? Because I could also be like, Hey everyone, it's Lent. Are you fasting? You should be fasting. Okay. I don't know. It's not It's not really the vibe that I'm feeling right now. Because I kind of like Lent. I kind of like there being a season for you to challenge yourself. I think that... Um, I think that the our, our traditional fasting um, rules or ethics, I don't know what you call them, uh, guidelines, they really speak to me. And I feel like I really need them more and more every year. I remember last year how the moment Lent started, I'd start to see Arby's commercials or ads. And I was like, man, I want to eat Arby's, which... I've never th- once thought of throughout the year. Like the entire year, I don't see an Arby's. I don't think of an Arby's. You know, I can make my own roast beef sandwiches, my cheap roast, roast beef sandwiches, and, and I'm not affected. You know, like Arby's has no hold over my soul. But I remember last year starting to, to, uh, to fast and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, I wish I could go. And it's like, that's just so weird. It's so weird that that I think, I actually think that it's different fast foods every year. Because I seem to remember another year where it was Wendy's. Wendy's is more understandable. Wendy's is pretty good. But Arby's? Like, that the thing that my soul had, like, was gripped in some way to Arby's? So strange. Anyways, I hope that by the time I die, every fast food chain will have uh, no sway over me in the um, everlasting direction of my soul. So there you go. Anyways, today we are going to be talking about Gregory Palamas. Now, I had said, ooh, it was either on the Instagram page or in a past episode, that um, I'm not too sure how to approach... Gregory Palamas. Palamas is a controversial figure um, because he's used in in debates uh, between East and West as kind of this kind of exemplar of Eastern theology. And it's not that I have any apprehension towards Gregory Palamas, just maybe in the way people use Gregory Palamas. And to even have a firm grasp on his theology, to be able to talk about it with any kind of authority, at least the authority that I would give myself through the agency of reading um, his works and understanding him on his own terms, I didn't really have the time to do that this year. And so what I've, but at the same time, I still wanted to do Palamas Sunday. So. I think I found a way because Palamas has a homily on the the story of the paralytic uh, of the paralyzed man in Capernaum, which is today's 
gospel reading. And so what I'm going to do on Palamas Sunday, I'm going to talk about Gregory Palamas's take, his homily, on this passage in scripture. Now, anything that I've read, I haven't read a lot of Palamas. I've only read his, his Marian homilies and this homily. And, you know, the odd quote here or there. And man, it's all dynamite. Like, I think that when I finally do sit down to learn Gregory Palamas, I'm just going to love him to death. Um, but but who, who's to know? I think that's going to be a special one day. I think that's going to be, I, I'm not going to be able to maybe do it on his feast day. I was thinking about maybe producing just a special, like a Hagiosto special on Gregory Palamas. Anyways, so let's begin. So it's kind of interesting to actually think. This is Palamas talking about the gospel that is read on the second Sunday of the Great Fast. Now, if you're Gregory Palamas and you're talking today, the last thing that you're thinking is eventually they're going to name this Sunday after me. No, not at all. But it's just an interesting thought to think that this is exactly what happens, that, you know, this given Sunday that he's giving this homily, that years down the road, they're going to be celebrating him. Now, granted, it's not for this specific homily, it's for his theology and for his spiritual writings. What Palamas does in his homily is he begins with the message that the kingdom of God is at hand and the kingdom of God is within you. Now, it's kind of giving a greater context to the sermon because this is what Lent is. This is the coming of Pascha. This is the coming of Christ. And this is, this is, the, um, this is the season in which we are hearing this message. And so he's, and you'll see, he provides more and more context as we get closer to him talking about the actual gospel. But he's, he's placing, he's putting everything in its place first. And so he's talking about Lent um, and he says, our whole life is intended as a suitable means of attaining salvation, but this season of fasting is more especially so. Now, I won't use Valentine's Day as an example, because not everyone, not every couple celebrates Valentine's Day, but likely every couple celebrates their anniversary. Now, I like both. We, me and Sarah, we do both. And there are interesting times because whenever it's your anniversary, you look back at the last year or the last two years or for some people, 5, 10, 20 years of your relationship with this person is a time to reflect. And it's kind of the same way with Jesus in the church or our own spiritual life. It's kind of like it's our time to reflect back that, yes, like all throughout the year, you're supposed to be loving your spouse. No one is saying that reserve your love for your spouse on your anniversary. That would be that marriage wouldn't make it to an anniversary. But there's a special time where all of that love throughout the year comes to a culminating point. And I, I like to think of Lent as kind of like the same type of thing. And Palamas is showing us how to, he starts off with saying the kingdom of God is coming, which always to me kind of rings like, you know, when you're a kid and 
your parents are, you know, away for the day or a given period of time and they give you a list of tasks to do. And then all of a sudden you just kind of, you know, goof, goof off with your siblings. But then, you know, me living on a farm, we could always see them coming down the road. And everyone's like, mom and dad are coming. Make it look like you're doing the chores. And so we we all, we go do our chores. That That's what always is kind of the image that conjures for me saying the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, the end of the world is coming. You got to get your priorities straight. You got to get your, your, you know, ducks in a line. And Gregory is showing us how to get our ducks in a row. Just as failing to restrain the stomach destroys the virtues and is the mother of passionateness, so self-control destroys the stains caused by self-indulgence and is the mother of dispassion. He uses that word dispassion. And at a f- at first glance, it might kind of seem like he's saying that we need to kind of be in this malaise, this passionlessness. There's a particular saint, Saint Antichius, who has this kind of a, a night prayer that it's it prays, O Lord, grant me thine unworthy servant, thy salvation upon my bed. Enlighten my mind with the light of understanding of thy gospel, my soul with the love of the cross, my heart with the purity of thy word, and my body with thy passionless passion. And we, we look at that and we're like, well, what does that mean? Is it just we we're supposed to be unf- unfeeling people in a malaise? No, it doesn't mean that. It's more like... Um, it's more like a, as we were kind of talking before with, you know, Arby's or with just fast food. Arby's is a bad example. But being able to not have an unhealthy attachment to things in the world or not having your attachments grounded to things in the world. Have you ever had that experience where you're watching YouTube and, you know, someone's making buttermilk fried chicken? And you find yourself in no time at all buying all the ingredients for buttermilk fried chicken and making it because you can't, you can't simply go with throughout your life thinking that you saw this video and didn't try to reproduce what this chef was doing. Well, passionatelessness, dispassion is like watching those videos, whether it be buttermilk fried chicken or or a really great pizza or what have you. And just being like, well, good for that person. That seems interesting. The way that they did those things that cook. Um, and now moving on. And not having it kind of direct and control your life. You can tell that I'm drawing from a lot of personal experience today. I love watching cooking shows. And I love uh, knowing how to make really good tasty things. And that is often the case. Well, sometimes it's the case that you see this video and I can totally do that. I can totally make that and I can totally taste that. But perhaps the whole process and the whole experiment is more driven through compulsion than it is through your own personal agency. Anyways, this is what he's talking about, freeing ourselves from dispassion, that fasting is, you know, a practical thing that we do in life that breaks us from that that compulsion and that attachment. And he talks about it as if it's a 
kind of a foundational thing to have in, in pursuing the virtuous life. That you're not going to get virtue, you're not going to get the rest of the virtues, unless you learn this. Now, this doesn't necessarily have anything to do with directly with today's gospel. But imagine yourself being someone, one of Palamas's congregation, and you were struggling uh, too, too fast. You're struggling in your Lenten observance. And you came and sat down and you heard this message. It might be pretty encouraging to hear that. And so that's kind of the, the context that we're being given today. So Palamas gives everyone the, he, he relays to them the benefits of, of fasting and them, encourages them in their spiritual journey. And then he opens up the gospel. He starts contextualizing now the, the gospel message that has been read. Palamas begins by talking about Capernaum as the center of Jesus's ministry, the center of Jesus's preaching, and talking about how wildly popular Jesus is at this given moment. Like he can't go anywhere. He has to go to the outskirts, the desolated place, the desolate places outside of the city in order to do his preaching because it's just, he's too um, followed by crowds. I think the majority of us kind of lack the perhaps understanding of what this kind of fame was like. I think if you live in LA and you, you know, have access to like famous people, you you know what that's like for someone to be spotted and for a crowd to kind of gather around them. I was living in Winnipeg a few years back. This might be like 10 years ago. And the White Stripes were on tour. And on this particular tour, every city that the White Stripes went to, in Canada at least, they did some kind of quirky, you know, they showed up somewhere, these kind of gestures. And like I think in one city, they showed up at a bowling alley during the day and they just kind of started to play music. And likely what happened was people were like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. And, you know, they would text their friends or if they lived nearby, they'd knock on someone's door and they're like, come on, the White Stripes are playing right now at the bowling alley. And, you know, people would all go and they'd find this out. When I was living in Winnipeg, when they came, they got on Winnipeg Transit and they sang with everyone on the bus, the wheels on the bus. Now, imagine being in Winnipeg at the time, as I was, and I think it was even one of the transit lines that I took, even though I didn't see it happen. But it's like it was on the news. People were taking pictures. People were texting their friends. Get on the bus. The white stripes are on the bus. This is kind of like the, the culture that was following Jesus in, in Capernaum at the time. It's like, I think in, in Mark's gospel, it says, when they found out he was home, they went to his house. What Palamas says now is that in his preaching, because the majority of what he was doing was preaching, he had certain things Jesus would preach about, and most often it was repentance. He says, publicly and without reproaching anyone, he preached to all the word of repentance, the gospel of salvation, and the words of eternal life. Everyone heard, but not everyone obeyed. For although we all love listening and watching, not all of us love virtue. 
And I think that what Palamas is saying here is a little more interesting than what we typically hear from the pulpit. And I don't mean to offer too harsh of a criticism, but we all know that this is pharisaical to hear, to, to go to church, to, to listen, to, to participate in scripture and then go live another life. And I feel like not doing this, you know, the prohibition towards this kind of behavior is always given, but I don't think we're necessarily ever told how we're supposed to go about this because yeah, we're all pharisaical and this kind of behavior is actually ingrained in us. I don't think, I think it's like, we don't really take to heart how serious this is and we need a way out from being pharisaical. We need to be told how to not be a Pharisee more, more so than just saying, don't be a Pharisee more than just the prohibition. It's like, don't be lustful. Well, how do you do that when you have a compulsion to be a Pharisee, which is what we all have? And this is what Palamas gives us. Here's what Palamas says. Putting the words into action, however, or reaping from the fruit of the beneficial of beneficial faith requires gratitude and good intent, which are not easy to find, especially among people who consider themselves righteous, and are wise in their own opinion. Gratitude and good intent. So how I would describe that, because he doesn't actually go into that right now. He doesn't actually say, how, how do you use these things and how do you do it? But if I were to, to kind of take what he says and run with it, I would say gratitude is that thing, is the recognition of having been gifted with something that you yourself could not have provided for yourself. And you have a thanksgiving for it. And it's like a recognition of your humble reception of, of a gift. And then good intent to me simply means that you're not malevolent and you don't actually desire the ill intent, ill intent towards anyone. Likely the best place to employ this would be speech. I'd imagine that we actively pursue gratitude and good intent through the way that we talk. And then after that is probably the way that we think, am I really grateful right now? And am I really, do I really have good intent towards everyone? I bet if we turn that into a spiritual exercise, am I grateful? And do I have good intent towards everyone? I think that we would slowly be see ourselves coming out of that pharisaical self-righteousness. And it is at this point that Palamas begins to actually go into the gospel. And we'll, we'll start to go into the gospel as Palamas does line by line. So this is from Mark chapter 2. We're going to read 1 to 3 first. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room for them, not even about the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So the first thing Palamas does is he brings up all the different times in scripture that someone was healed on behalf of the faith of another person. He brings up the servant of the centurion, 
the, the centurion says, you know, just if you just say the word, my servant at home, who's at home right now, sick, he'll be healed. And he brings up the Canaanite woman's daughter and Jairus's daughter. And he saw the faith of the person kind of interceding on their behalf. And he said, well, because of your faith, that person will be healed, essentially. And however, though, Palamas says that it's not the case with the paralyzed man. Now, that can be kind of surprising. You would think that, you know, there's all these people who are carrying this guy on his own behalf because he can't carry himself. You think that this would kind of fall in line with the other three stories of the, the servant of the centurion or, or you know, Jairus' daughter. But this is not the case. And here's what Polymus says. The paralyzed man, by contrast, was present and in his right mind, although his body was paralyzed. It seems more likely to me, therefore, that his bearers accepted faith in the Lord and ventured to approach him as a result of the paralyzed man's own hopefulness and faith. Persuaded by him, they took him and carried him up on the roof and let him down from there in front of the Lord. They could not have done this against his wishes. Obviously, being racked with paralysis had been broken down, not his reason, but all barriers and obstacles to faith. It's a fair enough point to make. The men who were carrying him were carrying him because of his own wishes, because of his own desire, because of his, his own goading of them. He corralled, even though he was paralyzed, with his words, corralled these men to help him bring him to Jesus, to lift him up on the roof as we're about to see. Do you remember the parable of the wedding feast in Luke 14, where all of these invitations go out to the feast and everyone makes up their excuses? Well, they're Palamas contrasts them with the paralyzed man, citing the faith of the paralyzed man being the kind of antithesis to this um, real paralysis, actually, of the interior life. Palamas then goes on to speak further about the kind of interior disposition of the paralyzed man in terms of his own sickness. There are times when illness is better for sinners than good health because it helps them towards salvation and blunts their inborn evil impulses. Inasmuch as it repays the debt of sins by means of suffering, it makes them able to receive healing of their souls in the first instance than healing of their bodies. This happens most of all when the sick person, understanding that the affliction is a remedy from God, bears it courageously falls down before God with faith and asks for forgiveness through whatever works he can manage. This was shown by the paralyzed man who did what he could and proved by the Lord's own words and actions. Now, here is something that for me was something I had not really recognized before. I've heard this story all my life, and I'm just going to read it to you. I'm going to go from, we stopped at three, we're going to go four onward. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, let, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, child, your sins are forgiven. Now in the gospel, Mark has 
made the effort to show to us that this man is paralyzed, can't move himself, got a whole bunch of people together to bring him to Jesus, couldn't get into the house, brought him up on top of the roof, dug through the roof, dropped him down. All None of this he, he could do on his own because he's paralyzed, but his sins are forgiven. It's all for the forgiveness of his sinfulness. They didn't introduce the man as an adulterer or a thief or a murderer. Now, me being a materialist, I get sidetracked by things, as you know we all do, um, in, a, in a material way. I see the paralytic as being someone who doesn't have the same kind of faculties that I do and think, naturally, his major problem is the fact that he can't move. But no, his major problem is the fact that he's a sinner and that his ailment is there due to the fact that he is a sinner. It is this man's sin that is his major problem, not the fact that he can't move. It's not a wheelchair that's going to save you from the, you know, eternal fires of hell. It's going to be our repentance that saves us. But that's just my own little anecdotal. That's what I'm learning from from the gospel today. Um, But let's kind of continue with scripture. Um, Now some scribes, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned like this within themselves, said to them, why do you question like this in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your pallet and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, take your pallet, and go home. And he rose, and immediately took his pallet, and walked out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Here's what Palamas had to say. Although Christ's words and the miracle were at odds with the scribes' reasoning, in some ways they agreed with it. They showed that no human being is able in his own right to forgive sins. They also show, however, that the Pharisees' opinion that Christ was merely a man, not Almighty God, was false and devoid of understanding. He goes on to say, Christ was both God and man, twofold in nature and energy. On the one hand, he spoke as a man like us. On the other hand, as God, he accomplished whatever he pleased through his word and command alone. The Pharisees were so entrenched in their own worldview, they couldn't, they couldn't recognize God when he actually did finally show up on earth. That they were so they were so rigid in their own um, their own narratives, their own ideology, that they they couldn't recognize God when He healed people right in front of them. And here we see evidence of that twofold nature of Christ: that He is completely God and completely man. He is man in how He does things as a man. He He talks, He walks, and He preaches, and He uses His words to communicate, but he also uses his words to effect change within the world. You know, we, we kind of have that in a way. I can say to someone, you're an idiot, 
And, you know, through that, through my words, it can implant them with, with the idea if they don't have self-confidence that, you know, oh, I am an idiot. But, but Jesus affects reality with his words, that he is able to command authority over the paralyzed, whatever was paralyzing the, the paralytic man. What Palamas does next in his homily, he goes and he explains the gospel all over again, but this way in an analogous sense. He talks about the man who is, you know, brought up onto the roof. He says he is taken up and brought to the Lord by these four. Self-condemnation, confession of former sins, promising to reconcile evil ways from now on, and prayer to God. I imagine that these are things that anyone would need to do in order for their sins to be forgiven by God. And he goes on to say, They cannot, however, bring him near to God without uncovering the roof, scattering the tiles, earth, and other building material. Our roof is the reasoning part of the soul, which is said above everything else within us. But it has lying on top of it, like a large quantity of building material, its connection with the passions and earthly matters. Once this connection has been loosened and shaken off by means of the four things we have mentioned, then we can really be let down, that is, humbled, fall down before the Lord, draw near to him, and ask and receive his healing. Now, when I first began to become interested in church and started to go on these retreats when I was in high school, it was there were these events where the the aim of the retreat was to get all these kids to come, you know, teenagers, and instill in them some kind of an emotional reaction, uh, coming in the form of, you know, crying and tears and hugs and all that stuff. I remember there was this first retreat that I went on and that's exactly what it was. And you ended up in this, you know, gymnasium at the end of it. And there were, there were candles and everything was dark and everyone, you know, ended up, I I don't even quite remember what exactly the content was. It was just everyone crying about their lives. And you know, this was typically the event that you want to sit beside a pretty girl at because she'll like rub your hand and everything. And when I began after that, going to my next retreat, my next retreat, it was all to run after this emotional reaction because that's what spirituality was. It was this mountaintop experience Um, At first, you know, being in those situations where you're divulging your personal details and then, you know, you would go to uh, praise and worship events and and you would be, you know, singing songs and crying and all that kind of stuff. And so I was given this impression that in order to advance in the spiritual life, well, you had to have these moments and that they needed to be more intimate, more demonstrative and more um, going after the next thing. And eventually I realized that this wasn't, this wasn't feasible. And eventually I realized that everyone else who went on these retreats with me in the past, they no longer went to church. It's because we weren't giving people 
the tradition of Christian spirituality. And this is what Palamas is doing with the analogy of going through the top roof of the house, of digging through the building materials, that they are the, that it is to resemble our connection to the world. We are to shed the world. There is a that first stage of the spiritual life is purgative because we get rid of sin, we get rid of our attachments. And he's going and he's bringing things full circle from that introduction where he's talking about this is the season to do this in. I think that it might be a harder sell than, you know, having these kind of mountaintop experiences with lots of tears and hugs from cute girls that you like. I think that it's a harder sell to say that in order to approach God, you need to get rid of the world. That you need to change something about your life. Now, going back to the gospel that Palamas is talking about, you might be thinking, where exactly did the paralyzed man confess his sins? Because Palamas is saying that this is a necessary thing that you need, one of the four things, in order to, in order to be forgiven. Palamas answers this. Palamas states that his repentance is found within the act of him being lowered before Jesus and is further evidenced by Jesus calling him a son. Now, in our RSV version that I read from earlier, Jesus calls him a child. But in Palamas, in Palamas's, uh in his sermon, He's using a translation where Christ calls him a son. And he connects this. He connects this with a verse from John. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So he's saying that because... Jesus calls him a son. This is evidence of the reception of Christ into his heart and his remittance of sins. So when we fall down before him with such faith, says Palamas, our paralyzed mind immediately hears him saying, son, and receives forgiveness and healing. Now, I think a lot of the times when we regard repentance, we think of repentance of having, you know, having to confess. We think it's very juridical. However, for Palamas, a, a disposition of repentance before Christ can be as simple as bowing down before him. Simply think of all the different ways you can communicate things through a gesture. You can look at someone and make them feel pretty low about themselves. Of course, there's like flipping someone the bird. They, you, they know exactly what you're saying when you're using your body to speak. And when we come before Christ, it's no different. Just think of the prayer of St. Ephraim that we pray during Lent with the three prostrations or even the canons of St. Andrew. Uh, an entire liturgy or a service made out of prostrations. Or even think about standing during the liturgy. These are all ways in which our body communicates something towards God without saying something. Palamas continues, and he's talking about what it means for 
the man, the paralyzed man, to get up to take his mat and walk. After being healed, our mind has our body under control and leads and carries it about. Through it, our mind brings to light the fruits and works of repentance so that all who see them glorify God. For they see that yesterday's publican is today's evangelist. The persecutor, an apostle. The thief, a theologian. Even the man who used to live among pigs, if you please, is now the son of the Heavenly Father. I have a friend who says every time that she goes to confession, every time she makes the decision, decision, it feels as if she's going to the principal's office, that she's getting in trouble. But later finds out that that's not actually the case. Repentance gives us agency. It gives us agency over the body. The thing that the body of the paralyzed man was laying on, he then has control over afterwards. What Palamas is saying is that only true freedom is found in the pursuit of Christ through repentance. These sins that we have, that we are just, we have no power over them, but to kind of just lay our bodies on top of, like the paralyzed man on top of his bed. When we go to repent and we go to Christ, he gives us the capacity to to control them, to have authority over them, and that them over us. So Palamas's message to us is one of repentance. And yes, that is typically something we hear during Lent. And at your parish sometime, you know, in the next few weeks, there is going to be a some kind of a reconciliation service where your priest will bring all of his priest friends in and they'll hear all your confessions. Anyways, there was a time, I wanted to share this story because I just remembered it as I, as we're ending up ending off here, there was a time where I thought that I was going to the principal's office. You know, the time where you were just so afraid to go to confession. I was a public Christian at the time. You know, people knew me in the community, and I ended up messing up in ways I never thought I would. It was the most. It was the worst stuff I had ever brought to confession and to admit in front of another person. And I was going to, I was in another city going to this parish that had an African priest by the name of Father Isidore. Father Isidore was known to be a fiery man. And so I was doubly intimidated. I ended up going and I ended up sitting down in front of him and I plainly said all of my sins, which, which uh, they were devastating to me. And Father Isidore, a man who is known for pounding his fist on the pulpit um, during his homilies, he, he, he was a taller guy, and he had his, he had his arms on his... Uh, I'm, I'm doing, I'm physically doing it right now, even though you can't see it. He had his, uh, his hands on his legs and he was kind of hunched over listening. And when I was finished confessing, it was just quiet. 
and he didn't say anything. And in this really intense African way, and I'm going to impersonate him here, don't call racist, because this was awesome. It adds to the awesomeness. Hands on his, on his legs, looks at me hunched over, glares at me and says, This is a moment of healing. And I don't remember what he said next, but I don't think I needed to. Because I have never been afraid to go to confession again. Because that moment to me, it just spoke of God's awesome love. That his love is intense and he communicates it to us sometimes in really intense ways where our sin is, I was going to say equally intense, but it's not equally intense. He doubles down on it. You know, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And Father Isidore, in that gesture, gestures, he spoke something to me. More than just the words. More than just the theatrics. It was that, that nothing that I could say or do was going to outdo the mercy of God. Let's leave it at that today. Thank you, St. Gregory Palamas. Let's end off with praying the prayer of St. Ephraim. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. O Lord and Master of my life, drive from me the spirit of indifference, despair, lust of power, and idle chatter. Instead, bestow upon me, your servant, the spirit of integrity, humility, patience, and love. Yes, O Lord and King, let me see my own sins and not judge my brothers and sisters. For you are blessed now and forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been your Daily Dose of Agios. St. Gregory Palamas. <laughs>